If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Sunday, September the 20th, and welcome to a special weekend edition of Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th president of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, as well as the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. My guest today joining me from somewhere in the San Francisco Bay Area is my colleague, John Yu. John Yu is a visiting fellow here at the Hoover Institution, professor of law at the University of California Berkeley School of Law. From 2001 to 2003, John served as Deputy Assistant General in the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department of President George W. Bush. John co-hosts the Hoover Institution's Pacific Century podcast with our colleague Misha Oslin. John's also an author. His book, Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power, came out earlier this summer. John, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, Bill, thanks a lot. And uh, I wish we had uh, better reasons to take the podcast, but it's still an important time to... It is an important time, an important topic. So you and I did a podcast just about three weeks ago discussing odds, twists, and turns in this election, and we talked mostly about vote counting and certification and what role the courts would play, what various constitutional crises could be triggered. And one thing which I don't think we really talked much about, I think maybe in passing, uh, was the idea of a Supreme Court vacancy, which is now obviously at the top of the news with the passing this Friday of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So here we are, John, two years after the last time we had a Supreme Court battle and what would appear to be another battle royale. Uh, here's how I'd like to do this in this podcast, John. Um, I think we should talk, first of all, about her legacy. Then secondly, let's talk about her historical significance on the court. And then thirdly, the real meat of the conversation, which will be what next. So let's start with legacy, your thoughts. She was uh, the first pick by a Democratic president since Jimmy Carter, I think. Bill Clinton picked her in 1993. I think it's a 26-year gap, John, between Democratic picks. She replaced Sandra Day O'Connor. Uh, but you pointed out in an email to me that this is a legacy defined in large part by dissents. Yes. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, of course, was a great lawyer, maybe one of the greatest lawyers of the last half century. Uh, but like Thurgood Marshall, uh, whose uh, strategy she copied to challenge gender discrimination, uh, she was, uh, it was her fate to be nominated to a court that was trending conservative. And so she played most of her role in defending the precedence of the Warren court and even some of the Burger court against a conservative majority that was looking to overturn them, pair them back. And so many of her great decisions are uh, dissents. And so we often uh, study, uh, you know, I was thinking about military history, you know, we often study the generals who are famous for going on the offensive, like a MacArthur or Patton. We don't study so much the and admire so much, perhaps, as we should, the people who are on the opposite sides from them. And that's one way to think about Justice Ginsburg's legacy on the court. She wasn't able to uh, pronounce broad new theories of constitutional law, completely revolutionize our understandings of things like individual rights. That was what the Warren Court did. Uh, in the position she was in during, this last, during these last 20 years, she was mostly trying to critique, limit, cajole, trying to contain a conservative majority and from now and then uh, pick off maybe one or two conservative justices for a win here and there. Mm -hmm. But mostly it was a, it was a, a career built on dissents. And is she shown mostly writing uh, in five to four um, decisions on the, on the four side, or is it six threes or seven twos? In other words, is she representing kind of a liberal block or is she sometimes kind of on her own? Oh, usually she's on in terms of a liberal bloc. It's interesting. In terms of the liberal justices, uh, she was probably the least likely of all of them to try something revolutionary. She was actually a great stickler for procedure, for sticking to the test tests that came down from past cases, from pointing out when the majority was doing something new. And so she wasn't that, which is interesting, such a contrast to the way she was before she was a justice. And uh, so she was often the justice who would represent three or four liberal uh, justices who could agree on her very uh, straightforward, precise approach to the law. She wasn't uh, someone who was going to go off on some expedition into the wilderness and lose 
different votes. And that's also what made her effective when she was trying to get uh, maybe a Justice Kennedy or uh, Justice O'Connor or maybe a Chief Justice Roberts now to leave the conservatives and side with her because she, her main method argument would be uh, to say, you guys aren't doing this right. You know, just a few years ago, you said this, and now you're cheating and you're playing around. And that kind of argument really can be successful on the Supreme Court, especially in really close cases. And if John, if you had to point uh, followers of the court to one of her opinions that you think really is kind of the quintessential Ginsburg opinion, is it is it the majority opinion she wrote in the uh, VMI uh, women's admissions case, or to be one of the dissents in, say, the Voting Rights Act case, uh, Bush v. Gore, Title Seven issues? Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the VMI case. This was a case where the court said that the Virginia Military Institute, a military school that was sponsored by the state of Virginia, had to accept women. And it's interesting because uh, this was a case in a way that ratified, reaffirmed what she had done when she was an advocate 20 years before. The -hmm. case itself contained no startling revolution in constitutional. It was a sign that she had already won that issue, that women were protected under the Constitution from discrimination. That's actually a fairly straightforward opinion, and it's a seven-to-one case. Only Justice Scalia is in dissent, and it's only a dissent there to Justice Ginsburg because maybe there's an exception to military uh, issues when it comes to the ban on gender discrimination. But that, it really goes to your point, Bill, about her legacy. That's really the only great majority opinion I would say she ever wrote. Uh, most of her great opinions that her fans and supporters and people who will study her in the future will point to are going to be cases in dissent. Uh, you mentioned one of them, Bush versus Gore. Mm-hmm. But notice in Bush versus Gore, she was just chastising the conservatives on the court for being hypocrites, for not being as deferential to states and their state courts as they say they should be. Uh, another dissent would be Gonzalez versus Carhartt, which is the partial birth abortion case. Again, she didn't call for any startling new change in the law. She was just claiming that the majority hadn't given full respect to the undue burden standard when it was reviewing partial birth abortion. Uh, maybe the maybe the other great opinion of hers I'd point to would be a concurrence. Again, she didn't get to write the majority opinion on affirmative action, but these were the affirmative action cases uh, that came out of Texas and Michigan against state universities. Again, uh, she pressed her point, and this is the meaning I think of her career both before and on the bench was her belief that the constitution forbade almost all discrimination, required equality, but at the same time, she thought that affirmative action was necessary to bring about that equality. And she didn't, again, she didn't make a pitch for a broad, different understanding of the Constitution. Rather, she said affirmative action fit into the traditional way the court had been doing constitutional law for the last few decades. Let's talk about her significance, John, in sort of a larger cultural way. And uh, let's also begin this premise, John, with uh, understanding that you and I are very much handicapped um, to talk about this because we're not women. And <laughs> so, much, so much of what she embodied was important to women in this regard and that we don't understand the struggle women had in terms of going to law school and getting into the legal field and just what she meant to the generations of women who've come up kind of studying her as a role model. So let's 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 understand that. But um, I look at her, John, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg was um, part of a small clique, if you will, only 114 men and women, John, who have been Supreme Court justices in the history of our nation, 114. She was number 107. Um, but there is something special about her in this regard. You know what I'm reminded of, John, uh, because I'm, I, I was in Palo Alto at the time? It's the passing of Steve Jobs. And that Steve Jobs passes away, and beyond the talk about what it meant to Apple, beyond what it meant to the future of technology, if you will, there was just this very large cultural figure. And Jobs and Ginsburg are kind of interesting. I mean, he was famous for mock turtleneck. She's famous for her mock, uh, for her uh, lace neck collars, <laughs> black robe. Uh, but, but the image of her, just her, the glasses, notorious RGB. Um, speak to us, John, about, about her as a celebrity justice. I think uh, of all the people in the country, the person who'd probably be most surprised about her celebrity status would be her. <laughs> I, I think she must have been uh, quite bemused, but also shocked by it. I had a pleasure of having uh, several interactions with her over the years. I uh, clerked on the court, the DC Circuit Court of Appeals when she was a judge there. And then I clerked on the Supreme Court for Justice Thomas, her second uh, year on the court. And then 
Um, I would, uh, sometimes I participate. We spent uh, some time in Hawaii together. We were at the same conference at the University of Hawaii. And she liked to come out to Berkeley. And she would often come here for a speech or a conference because uh, the dean uh, who hired me, uh, Herman Hill Kay, was her great collaborator in those uh, fights about sex discrimination in the 70s. And so she was actually a frequent visitor to the Bay Area. She quite loved the Bay Area. Uh, but you know, the th my only point there is when you would uh, meet her, she was a very uh, modest person, very careful in her uh, speech, uh, very uh, not, um, say, the life of the party. I mean, people, of course, would cluster around her and want to talk to her, but she wasn't sort of the outgoing, gregarious uh, justice who, who I would associate. That personality type would be obviously Antonin Herstilia, her great friend. And in fact, I always thought the two of them were uh, opposites that attract because they were so different in personality, but they shared this uh, love for careful, precise approaches to the law. So that's why I always thought this notorious uh, RBG thing was so odd because it's so different than yeah. the way she was in person. Yeah, and she and Scalia, a very ironic book ended that he dies in February 2016, which triggers that election year fight over the court. Now here she is passing away in September of 2020, again, triggering another fight, John. But um, as you read the accolades and the reactions to her passing, you keep seeing words from the left, John, words like giant and titan and these these big, big, you know, huge words of praise thrown on her. So that's one question I'm curious about, John, you know. In the world of sports, I don't want to equate the court with sports necessarily, but we have this phrase in sports, GOAT, greatest of all time. We're always trying to figure who's the greatest quarterback, the greatest basketball player, the greatest baseball player, and so on and so forth. Uh, I'm not sure if we could say that there is a GOAT for the uh, Supreme Court, if you will, but if you, but John, if you were putting up a list of maybe top 10, top 15, top 20 most influential jurists in the, in the history of the court, where, where does she fit in? Oh, I, I think she'll be remembered as a better than average justice, certainly. I don't know if I would put her in my uh, top 10 list. And again, part of it is because she mostly spent her time playing defense. Uh, she wasn't someone, I think, who was uh, making remarkable changes in the Constitution. I would put her in my list of top 10 most important lawyers of the half century because of what she did before she was a justice. But, you know, when you talk about the goats of the Supreme Court, and I, by the way, but I was going to say, if you compare the court to sports, you're doing sports a disservice. <laughs> I mean, the sports are far more interesting than the Supreme Court and Supreme Court justices. I would, you know, you, you talk about people like Chief Justice John Marshall or the great uh, Justice Earl Warren or uh, Bill Brennan, you know, regard, without regard to whether we agree with them or disagree with them. Uh, and I think uh, Justice Ginsburg won't, I think, in the end, be at that level because the time wasn't right for her. I mean, she was, the court was not as if, as if the Warren court was, for example, when the court itself was part of the civil rights revolution. Uh, she was on the court in a time of consolidation, a time of, uh, yes, a lot of fighting, but in, within the, the norms that had been set already by mm -hmm. the Rehnquist court, uh, by the Roberts courts. I, I'm not going to I, I hate to say I, I can't think of her as being a top 10 justice, regardless of the uh, great respect I have for her and, and her uh, and her legal work and her skills, which I think were without parallel. Where would you place Scalia out of curiosity? I think Scalia may well get into that top 10, but it's interesting. Scalia shows maybe, again, they're so polar opposites, Scalia and Ginsburg, in that Scalia, I think he was the kind of guy who would like to be revolutionary, who wrote. And then I think he's actually been exceeded by Justice Thomas in that. But mm -hmm. Scalia uh, was, uh, wrote very few important majority opinions either. If you sit down and think of it, um, there are only a handful maybe. Most of his great opinions are concurrences and dissents too. But he was pulling the court in the direction that it ultimately has been going. You know, she, he wasn't playing defense. He was playing offense. He, he's sort of like a patent, right? He's a, you know, innovative. Push. And so it's, again, it's really interesting co to compare them to if, let me put it differently. If Ruth Bader Ginsburg had been on the Warren court, she would have had those opportunities. She would have pushed the law and she would have had the opportunity to be one of the greatest of all times. But her fate was to be on a conservative court and a country that wanted constitutional law to move in the opposite direction from her. All right, let's talk now about what next, and let's call this a category. Welcome to the next three years of your life, three months of your life, John Yu. <laughs> uh, 
this much but I hope I can't hear you. I can't see you. I can't breathe because there's so much smoke in the air. That's what the next three months of life in California are going to well, be. The next like. three months is going to be an endless series of TV hits and garbage and <laughs> like this. And we're wondering what comes next because we don't know what comes next. And this is yes. for those who dabble in this. This is just absolutely fascinating. Uh, so we do know this, John. Uh, the Supreme Court on Friday announced 7:28 uh, Eastern time that she had passed away. It took Mitch McConnell all of uh, one hour and 23 minutes to issue the following statement, quote, President Trump's nominee will receive a vote on the floor. That was preceded by a statement that came from uh, Justice Ginsburg's granddaughter, who, uh, who reportedly wrote down a dictated statement from the late justice that said, quote, my most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. Now, people people are having a field day, John, parsing that yes. statement. My most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. There is, first of all, in the great Clintonian tradition of depends what is, is. Uh, <laughs> here is the question of what does she mean by a new president? Does yes. she mean Joe Biden or does she mean whoever gets to raise his hand on January the 20th next year? Secondly, John, the other parsing, my most fervent wish. Note that she didn't say absolutely has to be this way. I demand, I insist. I would yes. be happy if she just said my most fervent wish. So she didn't necessarily, she did and she did not draw a line in the sand here. Yes, I, 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 first of all, uh, you know, we don't, uh, uh, despite our uh, sadness at her passing, of course, her, you know, we don't give dying wishes. We don't fulfill the dying wishes when it comes to things like the Constitution. Right. Um, and, you know, we, as you said, Bill, just a few weeks ago, we went through all the crazy ins and outs of what could happen in the election. And one thing I was trying to uh, underscore was that on January 20th, Donald Trump's term ends uh, right. the next day, the next minute, right? The new president under the constitution takes office and it can be the same person who was in office. It could be Donald Trump, but he's the new president. It's, uh, and, or it could be Joe Biden, but under the constitution, right? That, that's a new presidency. So I, but you know, I, I gotta say, when you hear that statement, the very formality of the language, you know, my most fervent wish, that does sound like to me that what I remember the way Justice Ginsburg talked. <laughs> I mean, she was a very formal, it gives you a flavor of the way she was very precise and uh, very uh, clear <laughs> in, in how she spoke. I have, I have no doubt that that's what she wanted. Let me throw two sets of numbers at you here, John. I want your thoughts on this. First of all, in terms of, let's say, Let's say President Trump comes forward with a, a nominee uh, in this upcoming week, and I want to throw a few of the possibilities at you in a couple minutes. Uh, let's say he comes up with somebody this week. To today, John, we are 44 days out. Let's say he does it on Tuesday. That's 42 days out. The fastest Supreme Court confirmation, John, in the last 30 years was whose choice do you think? Whose pick? I'm going to say John Roberts. No, Jeopardy <laughs> music is actually, it was RBG. It was on... Oh. Uh, 1993, it took 42 days from start to finish, John. The average oh. confirmation since 1975 is 67 days. But uh. but this can get messy. I went and I looked at the timeline for <laughs> Brett Kavanaugh's nomination process, mm -hmm. John. He mm -hmm. was nominated on July 9th of 2018. The Judiciary Committee took it up on September the 4th. The nomination moved out of committee on September the 28th. The Senate confirmed him on October the 5th, John. That is a better part of 12 weeks. Mm. Hmm. But, 12, 12 weeks of a lot of twists and turns and a lot of plot yes. changes and people showing me yes. out of nowhere and all kinds of monkey wrenches thrown in. So in theory, it's possible to do this in as quick as 44 days, even sooner if they can. Uh, but history shows it takes longer. Well, let me throw one other thing at you, John. <laughs> that is this. On uh, November 13th of 1980, this would be nine days after Jimmy Carter is just soundly defeated in the presidential election, John. He lost 44 states. The Republicans gained the Senate for the first time in a quarter of a century. Jimmy Carter, John, on November 13th of 1980, uh, announced a nomination for the First Circuit Court of Appeals. John, that gentleman was Stephen Breyer. Yes. Right. So the Democratic Senate, a lame duck uh, Democratic Senate, took it up, John. They confirmed him 26 days later, with the Senate about to flip. So there is precedent if you want to go back. And I'm curious as to where, whether this is actually a legitimate comparison or it's apples and oranges. But there is history involving at least one justice, not as record pick, but still involving a justice where he was a lame duck appointment by an outgoing president and a Senate about to change hands. Yes. And in fact, I, I can throw in two more twists and turns to that too, Bill. I, I, God, I didn't know about those dates. That's really uh, amazing. Uh, but one is that uh, Steve Breyer, I believe at the time, I was on leave from Harvard and was the chief counsel of the Senate Judiciary Committee under right. uh, Ted, Ted Kennedy. Kennedy. Right. And so I worked for Orrin Hatch, who was around the 
around then. And, and Senator Hatch would always say, and he loved Breyer and pushed for him to get confirmed, uh, both for the circuit court and the Supreme Court. But I, my recollection is that Senator Hatch said that was part of a deal, that he and Kennedy, they, they had an understanding that they wanted the uh, transfer of power to be a smooth one, that we didn't have the acrimony that we do now in partisan uh, polarization or in the nominations process. And that was a sign of the way uh, justices, uh, uh, that the Judiciary Committee used to work and perhaps cooperation is a possible again. The other uh, possible I was just gonna throw in there, uh, Bill, just to really screw things up, I'm sure you've thought about it already, was uh, you could also have a recess appointment. <laughs> so you could also, right, put, oh, this hasn't been done since I believe Justice Brennan and uh, Justice Brennan, but you could, right, put someone in now as a recess appointment and fill the seat, you know, it's a limited term until the end of the session, and then create that kind of momentum in favor of a speedy confirmation process too. I think that might've been, I think somebody might've suggested that for Harriet Myers, John, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. because, <laughs> because she was running just fierce opposition on both sides, just do a recess appointment and just slam it through. But the problem is your appointment is temporary. And right. so, yeah, I was just thinking uh, it would, it could create um, you know, the status quo, not status quo, but a kind of, it would push the momentum to get a confirmation uh, vote done. And that would be yeah, another uh, twist in the whole thing. But, uh, you know, if the, say the uh, Senate changes hands in the November 4th election, there'd be a lot of pressure, I suppose, not to confirm the recess appointee. Okay. So, well, first of all, John, is it possible for Mitch McConnell to shoehorn might be a harsh word, but uh, if, if 40, 42 days is the quickest, uh, confirmation that we have um, in the past 25 years, past 30 years, is it possible for him to do a process between now and election day? Keep in mind, by the time by the time Trump makes his pick, you're really you're under 40 days, probably. Yes, you know, putting on my hat now as an alumnus of the Senate Judiciary Committee staff uh, mm -hmm. back from the 90s. Uh, yes, of course. In fact, it the, the, a lot of the slowness is usually the background check. So if you think about the both the FBI does a background check, and then the Senate Judiciary Committee does, right. staff does its own investigation. And so a lot of the names that Trump has on his list are people who've been recently confirmed, you know, people right. that he himself has appointed to the lower courts. That's a, that gives them a slight advantage in who Trump might pick because the FBI then would already have done their background checks and the Judiciary Committee would have already done one right. from just a year or two ago. That might be a lot faster than say someone like a Brett Kavanaugh who'd last been checked in the Bush administration uh, in the second in the beginning of Bush's second term. So you have to go back and look at all the things he's done since then. Uh, the other thing is the 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 uh, Senate Majority Leader sometimes you know he doesn't have a lot of power, but mm -hmm. his most important is a real power now. It's the power to schedule. Right. And so McConnell always and I I don't think he would do this, but he always has it in the back of his pocket the threat that he is just going to schedule a vote <laughs> for the nominee on the floor whenever he feels like mm -hmm. the judiciary committee schedule be damned <laughs> he could always say look i think you're going to take too long so i'm just i'm scheduling it on for november 2nd we're going to have the vote then and that and he doesn't have to wait for hearings if he doesn't really want to and, and then this judiciary committee has to conform and speed up to his schedule right so one thing, John, is a majority leader has to be able to count to 50. And in this regard, RBG, I think, stands for really big gamble. <laughs> yes. Uh, he has to gamble, John, if he has 50 yeah. votes in his pocket, uh, if he were to try to do this before Election Day, because we know at least two Republican senators, Murkowski of Alaska and Maine of Collins, uh, Collins of Maine, have already said mm -hmm. that they don't want to do this before the election. There would be no votes. Uh, he can afford to shed one more Republican. Hello, Mitt Romney, uh, who everybody <laughs> wants to look at this. But, you know, if one other Republican flipped, then you would be at 50 and there's no room for, for you know, any mischief yeah. after that. So he has to figure, John, number one, if I do it before the election, besides obviously Democrats going berserk, uh, do I have 50 votes to get it through? But then secondly, John, he has to consider the results of the election. And if I come back in a lame duck session, it does get tricky in this regard. I was looking up some states in their, uh, in their election laws. Arizona, where there's a very contentious uh, Senate race right now, very good chance that the Democrats might flip a seat. Mark Kelly uh, ousting. Uh, Martha McSally there. Um, I believe Arizona uh, can seat its new senator, John, as soon as November the 30th, and other states do it right. in December. So again, McConnell has to decide not just when to do this, John, but when he has 50 votes he can count on. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Bill, because you could do it before. That's what everyone is talking about, but you could also do it in the lame duck. And I, you're right. I, I, I don't think anybody can 
predict with certainty how the outcome of the election would affect the lame duck. So thinking about it, <clears throat> you know, just again, as, <clears throat> excuse me, as a former senator, Senate staff, and not as, uh, you know, from the campaign angle. But if you were in the Senate, this is, would be an, a highly unusual thing to do in a lame duck. As you pointed out, Stephen Breyer, along with a few other people at the very end of the Carter years, were pushed through during the lame duck. But that's because the Republican and Democrats worked together to come to an agreement. I can't think of anything like this, a, a Supreme Court justice being done in a lame duck. On the other hand, <laughs> the way I think of it is, uh, suppose uh, the Republicans lose the Senate in November and you have a number of people, McSally, maybe a Gardner, maybe a right. Tillis, uh, maybe a Collins, who aren't going to be coming back <laughs> to the so in January. Well, they might just say, well, to hell with all this, I'm going to vote my conscience now and I'm going to vote for you know President Trump's nominee because the importance of the pick are incredible for constitutional law. I mean, as you point out, but the court has been carefully balanced. There's a lot of five, four decisions. This one pick could really, I mean, not could, I think would, if it were a conservative pick who got through, set the court on a conservative direction pretty comfortably for the next decade or more. Yeah. And John, also keep in mind, uh, of the could see court. a Senator who lost a Republican Senator lost. Right. And also keep I'm in sorry? mind, yeah, and just like parsing the words of uh, of uh, Justice Ginsburg, I think one needs to parse the words of Senators Burkowski and Collins and others. Are yes. they saying are they saying that we should not hold this vote before the election, or are they saying that we should not hold the vote until there's a new president? Because again, I think you just nailed it. There's a world of difference. Susan Collins, uh, Lisa Murkowski, any Republican has a problem with it can easily just say, "Well, you know, the election's been decided, but still we need to fill the court. It's the president's choice," and so I go along with it. Especially if you're Susan Collins and you're out of power anyway, why not do it? Yes. Uh, so you could see there being a lot more freedom uh, to, you know, the campaign will matter less. Uh, it's interesting. They could also say, you know, we, you know, then you've seen this critique of uh, Senator McConnell, Leader McConnell, that uh, he's being hypocritical compared to four years ago. Uh, but four years ago, <clears throat> the president and the Senate were in different hands and McConnell could maybe legitimately say the American people were divided on how they wanted nominations to go. But if you're a Collins, you're a Tillis, you're a Gardner, just to say, look, the uh, the American people in 2016 and then picked a president who's conservative. In 2018, they returned a Senate that was conservative. So why can't they finish out their terms with that kind of vote? In fact, one last little thing I don't think people have noticed is that the is by all accounts, and you're much more the expert of this than I, but I read that the 2018 Senate elections uh, you would expect the Republicans to lose seats. And because of the Kavanaugh hearings, actually a few seats might have gone Republican that might not otherwise have had. So in a way, if you were uh, voting as a senator now, you could say, look, the last time we went to the people, it was 2018 for a Senate vote. It was actually in the crucible of people being upset by the way Brett Kavanaugh had been cheated and people who generally wanted the court to become uh, more conservative. So we're going to keep honoring uh, that impulse back from two years ago. And you could also say it was uh, Democrats who went too far, I think, in attacking Kavanaugh, who swung the Senate that way. And now they're getting their just desserts for that in having a Senate right now that's 5347 that could end up putting in yet another conservative justice. Yeah, 20, the effect of the Kavanaugh hearings in 2018 was fascinating, John, because on the one hand, yes, it uh, made for misery for Democratic senators uh, in red states. Uh, this would have been Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota, uh, Donnelly in Indiana, Claire McCaskill mm -hmm. in Missouri, Bill Nelson in Florida. Why? Because voters in those states, exit polls, made it very clear that they were mad about the way Kavanaugh was treated. But conversely, John, it worked for Democrats. Democrats in House races because why? Mm -hmm. Suburban women, they uh, were very sympathetic toward uh, Christine Blasey Ford and they punished Republicans uh, in that regard. So it split. But yes, it did help uh, Republicans in those Senate races. So you look at Arizona, for example, maybe it helps uh, McSally. And maybe this helps the president in Florida. And so with that in mind, John, why don't we go mm -hmm. through um, uh, quickly the list of six possibles and maybe if one has some oh, oh no <laughs> this is so hard and you you and you your circles you know most of these people you guys yes. go here but uh so let's do this alphabetically john i will leave i want to leave the two most likely suspects for last uh, yeah. uh the first one up we're doing it alphabetically allison eyed uh that's spelled mm. e-i-d but pronounced eyed allison eyed uh she sits on the 10th circuit uh john she is 55 years old and she replaced uh gorsuch when he was elevated in 2017. 
Uh, her background, like you, she clerked for Thomas, and she was Colorado Solicitor General for a decade on the Supreme Court. Yes, I, I think uh, Allison is an outstanding conservative judge, and it would uh, she would do an excellent job. Uh, you, know, you could say President Trump has, again, five or six very strong conservatives to pick. She There would be nothing to worry with, I think, for conservatives if Trump picked I'd plus it goes to your point about confirmability. She's sitting in Colorado, a mm-hmm. potential swing state battleground state this year. And if you, if you're right, Bill, about uh, suburban women being upset in 2018 about uh, the way Dr. Ford was treated. Well, Allison, I, you know, if you see her in her hearings and her public presentations, she comes across as, you know, a normal Midwestern professional woman and if the Democratic senators are going to want their image from these hearings of them beating up, right, essentially on a suburban mom, right, that, that could, that, that, that would, I could think, have a big effect on the election. Okay, John, next up is Britt Grant. She is only 42 years old, uh, and she serves on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, confirmed in April of 2018, a contentious 52 to 46 vote, as one might expect in this day and age. Um, about her, she is um, the youngest of the uh, of the group seeking it, and she is close to Brett Kavanaugh. Yes, and so I think this is somebody who uh, conservatives uh, might get fairly excited about because even though she's young and doesn't have much of a judicial track record, I believe she's also been quite involved with conservative groups, uh, particularly. Uh, Alliance Defending Freedom, which is one of the groups that uh, has been has led and was very involved with the fight against the gay marriage uh, cases. And so that would make a religious conservatives extremely excited. But she's young, as you say, she has very little written track record. And so you could say maybe this is not quite her time. I think conservatives have been burned before by, uh, you know, assurances from conservative politicians and so on. Uh, over people with very little track record. You know, they can't forget uh, David Souter, (laughs) who I remember that, uh, um, you know, Governor Sununu and George H.W. Bush basically promised conservancy be a slam dunk. He had very few written opinions that anyone could point to. And uh, he, you know, he ended up voting with the liberal bloc very quickly. So I I think that just might make a conservative shy away a little bit from someone who's so young with such a small record. On the other hand, she, as I said, you know, she has worked with these groups that would be very happy and might, might again, be uh, great for President Trump's turnout in the election. But at age 42, that would be at about the age of Clarence Thomas. I think he was 41 at the time, wasn't he? 41 or 42. Yes, I think he was 41. Yes. Okay, next up on the list, John, is Joan Larson, uh, age 51. She spent much of her career as a professor at University of Michigan Law School, appointed the Michigan Supreme Court in 2015, uh, nominated by Trump to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit in 2017. Yeah, again, I think she's also a wonderful conservative judge. Uh, she, as you said, she clerked for Justice uh, Scalia, and I think Judge Santel in the D.C. Circuit, both, of course, widely admired conservative judge. She worked in the Justice Department for uh, President Bush, and we overlapped then. Uh, I think she, again, would be another home run. And again, it would be a difficult target for uh, liberals to attack. Here's a, here's a woman who has been a professor, just like uh, Justice Ginsburg had been. Um, she's, again, if you see her, she's a very uh, modest well-spoken professional woman from the Midwest. And again, if you want to, Democrats, I don't think want to have the hearings being filled with images. If if the election is really going to turn on suburban women, as it did two years ago, images of them attacking uh, Joan Larson or in Allison uh, Ide, who uh, I think hold very uh, conventional, though conservative, constitutional views and have done wonderful jobs in their professional careers. I think conservatives would be very happy with uh, Joan Larson, too. All right, John, fourth on our list, and there are two more to go after this. Uh, they're considered the front runners, but the fourth on the list is Amal Thapar. Uh, age 51, John, she would be the first Indian American to uh, be a member of the Supreme Court. She was confirmed uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit in May 2017. She has a Kentucky background, so she's a protege of Mitch McConnell's. Yes. Uh, John, she is a former Kentucky judge and U.S. attorney with vast trial court experience, which is a rare yes. on the Supreme Court. Uh, she was born in Detroit to Indian immigrants, grew up in Toledo, Ohio, with um, her uh, maternal grandfather, who fought with Mahatma Gandhi for India's independence. Mm. Just... Uh, I'll just correct you one thing because everyone on the list is a woman except for 
Judge the Par. <laughs> yeah, he's a <laughs> Judge the Par's the only man on the list. My uncle. Um, you know, no, no. <laughs> and he's a uh, Judge the. He's a graduate of the law school where I teach, and he's quite a popular figure here. Comes back a lot uh, to speak, and he's. Uh, given a lot of speeches at places like the Federal Society, the Claremont Institute, sort of well-known amongst very conservative circles. Um, he, uh, yeah, he's a, he'd be the first Asian uh, appointed to the Supreme Court. I, I, I do believe that, uh, that President Trump would like to appoint you know, someone who would be uh, uh, trailblazing in that way, just the way Justice Ginsburg uh, was, the second woman on the Supreme Court. And as you say, Judge Thapar, he's uh, very conservative. He's given some speeches where he's committed very strongly to, as have the others, uh, to interpreting the Constitution based on its original understanding. You know, I don't think conservatives have any uh, reason to doubt him. And as you say, he has that extra, the special sauce, as it were, of if anyone is going to get some deference, some, uh, you know, benefit of the doubt in the Senate, it would be Judge Thapar because he is a protege of Senator uh, McConnell. It's, I think you know, to become a U.S. attorney in your state means that the senator basically picked you. I got to think has got to be helped just the way Senator Kennedy was able to help right then co committee staff member Stephen Breyer back in 1980, as you nicely pointed out. Right, but John, uh, the president's pretty much indicated he's going to pick a woman. I think he said as much the other day, so this would be a surprise. But this is also what makes this process a little cleaner as opposed to the Kavanaugh process because we we do think that it's going to be very gender-specific. And again, this list of women, you've noticed them with Judge Thapar, they've all had recent vettings by the Senate, 2017, 2018, so all fresh new. So, John, let's go to our final two picks, uh, mm. the number one and number two people on the list. And uh, I don't know if you remember years ago when Notre Dame played Miami in football, and uh, they <laughs> it was a big, it was a big battle. Uh, Miami had killed Notre Dame the previous game, and Notre Dame wanted payback. And a very enterprising student, because Miami had a reputation of uh, getting in trouble with the law, a very entertaining, a very clever student, uh, made a lot of money and got into trouble at the school printing T-shirts that read "Catholics versus Convicts." <laughs> Never heard that. <laughs> no, Catholics versus Catholics. It's a great ESP thirty for thirty on the on the guy who did it. But that's what was Catholics versus Catholics. Really, that's very funny. Uh, uh, we got to get we got to break those out. <laughs> well, I mentioned this, John, because I want to I want to look at these two possible finalists for for the court, and I think I'd like to call these John Catholics versus converts. And this is, <laughs> one of these picks is about converting votes in Florida. And the other yeah. one is appealing to Christian conservatives, in particular Catholics. So let's talk. Let's talk about the convert side, and that is Barbara Lagoa. Uh, John, she is uh, 52 years ago. She was uh, confirmed to the U.S. Circuit for the, uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit last year. What is significant about her, John? Two things. Number one, she is Cuban American. She is the first yeah. Cuban American woman to serve on the Florida State Supreme Court, and she hails John from the great state of Florida. 29 electoral votes. Mm. So this is a tough one because I don't think she has, I, I hate to say it, she reminds me very much of, uh, uh, and I hope I'm wrong about it, but I, she reminds me a little bit of uh, Justice Souter or uh, Justice Kennedy. Uh, pe yeah, people, <laughs> you know, people who uh, didn't have much record. So, uh, you know, I, I haven't heard very much or read very deeply uh, about any opinions or speeches where she would uh be well known. She was, uh, you know, espousing or adopting conservative positions. The one that stands out, John, she was in the majority uh, last week when the Eleventh Circuit ruled six-four that uh, hundreds of thousands of Florida felons who served their time cannot vote this fall. So that's yeah. that's the red meat. Yeah, yeah. I have, I've probably, you know, I've probably little doubt that when you go and look at the voting patterns, she's probably, in, you know, her time on the Florida Supreme Court and then on the Eleventh Circuit has voted conservative. Uh, you know, she wouldn't make the shortlist of otherwise. Yeah, the problem is always um, predicting how they're going to do once they get on the court. And so I think this is where uh, I think the conservatives are today are different than the conservatives of the Reagan-Bush years. And that in the Reagan-Bush years faced with a Democratic Senate, they wanted to find like a John Roberts, say someone who they thought was conservative, wink, wink, nod, nod, conservatives, but who'd never said anything right. in public. And so I think conservative groups and uh, people in the Trump White House feel that the conservative movement got burned by a, a suitor, a Kennedy, or even a Chief Justice Roberts. And so actually the White House these days has the luxury because of a Republican Senate looking for people who've gone out and said things 
who've written opinions, you know, who, are, who have signaled, you know, shot up the signal flare that they are, in fact, pretty conservative. And uh, I just don't see that record with her yet. I mean, I see that she's, you know, worked for, uh, you know, in conservative judicial politics, I suppose, you know, was uh, in the assistant U.S. attorney down in the Southern District of Florida during the Bush years. And then uh, Governor DeSantis put her on the, the Supreme Court there in Florida. But, you know, that, you know, again, that's to me, I'm not saying she's like Souter, but that's the same track record Souter had, right? Like, you know, she, Souter had been attorney general under Rudman and had been on the first circuit by, but I, I think conservatives are going to demand more conservative. Uh, I, let me put this conservative legal uh, activists and maybe even people within the white house. I think they might, they might demand more on the record before they take a chance with such an important, you know, the sixth seat right. on the court. Okay, so let's uh, let leaves us down with one person on the short list. I know it seems longer than a short list, but we've only done six <laughs> people here. But this is this is somebody who's already becoming something of a cause celeb on the uh, on the right, and that's the idea of replacing the notorious RBG with the fabulous ACB and ACB. <laughs> ACB being Amy Coney Barrett. She is 48 years old, John. She serves on the Seventh Circuit of the U.S. Court of Appeals, uh, appointed to that in uh, 2017, one of the most contentious hearings in recent time, which became a discussion about her Catholicism. And John, two famous lines from Dianne Feinstein that will come back into play. Number one, where she said, quote, dogma and law are two different things. And Feinstein also saying about Barrett, quote, the dogma lives loudly within you. So this got the right in an uprage saying how dare Democrats in the Senate be so anti-Catholic. But if she is picked, John, um, I imagine conservatives rejoice. And I think the left just goes to absolute DEFCON 1 because <laughs> she is seen as a big, large threat to Roe v. Wade. And on top of that, John, because her religious faith ties into the Handmaid's Tale and all that, you see Hollywood coming out in force. And you can just imagine the whole freak show descending upon Capitol Hill. Yes. I, you know, and, and there's some you know, question whether, you know, that wouldn't happen no matter who was appointed by, uh, nominated by Trump, but you've got all the material there already waiting right by the word processor for all the bloggers on the, on the left. But, you know, as you say, but seriously, for a moment, as you point out, uh, Bill, uh, she has said and done things which make her a hero to conservatives and also those, the saliency of what she's done has made her a target for liberals. In a way, if Trump were to nominate her, it would make clearer than anything else the stakes of the election. Or you couldn't, uh, you know, there's no, oh, she might be liberal. There's no, uh, you know, maybe people in the middle could vote for her. You know, it's a, a defining choice. You, know, you really have to take a side. Uh, that said, you know, I think people, if you look carefully at what she's written, uh, I don't think that liberals can make the kind of claims they're making against her. I mean, they're inferring it, certainly. But, you know, when she's so she has written about the uh, very tough choice that judges have when your personal beliefs, personal religious beliefs conflict with your judicial duty. In fact, Justice Scalia gave such a, a famous speech about whether a Catholic uh, justice could find the death penalty constitutional, which he did repeatedly. And she, uh, you know, Judge Barrett, you know, Amy dis- wrote about the same subject. Right. And actually, if you look at her article she says, look, you, you, as a judge, you have to follow the law. You have to find the death penalty constitutional. And if you find that that conflicts too much with your personal religious views and moral views, then the choice, the appropriate choice for you is to recuse yourself or, le- or resign. And I think that's just uh, utterly correct without regard to whether you're conservative or liberal. People also say, oh, you know, she's going to overrule Roe versus Wade. And I looked and everybody looked pretty closely when she was confirmed. And she didn't really said anything about Roe versus Wade. People are making inferences about what she would do uh, based uh, just to any precedent. So I, I think, though, she's a, a again, it's she's a, I think she's a really smart. You know, all these people, you know, this is an interesting story of the Trump presidency is despite his right disruptive nature his attitude towards the law people claiming he's you know trying to tear up the constitution you know this is the focus of my uh, book he's right. actually seated the bench very deeply with some very strong conservative picks you know you pick six people trump could have another six to ten more from his list who would be equally conservative young uh, bright thoughtful uh, people of ability people who are fairly young um 
you know, the, I guess my wish is if, if Democrats are going to run through all these people, knock them all down, there's a whole army in line waiting who Trump could appoint instead, no matter what, you know, peculiar fi- failings that the Senate Democrats might, you know, so, so three raise against about, them. Three things about Amy Coney Barrett worth, worth mentioning, I think, John. Number one, there is a, a Scalia bloodline here. She did clerk mm-hmm. for Scalia. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, John, she is not an Ivy Leaguer. She is mm. uh, she is a golden domer. She did. Are they uh, allowed to clerk on the court now? <laughs> non Ivy League people. But this, <laughs> Trump ever the populist will point this out. Mark my words yeah. that she did yeah. not go to Harvard or Yale. That she went to <laughs> Notre Dame Law School. So she is of the Midwest. And then third, John, this gets the idea of okay, let's say you're going to dress up in handmade tails outfits and you're going to crazily protest the hearing and attack her and try to tear apart the way he did Kavanaugh. She doesn't look like a frat guy like Kavanaugh did. Uh, this is a mother of seven children, two yeah. she adopted from Haiti, one with special needs. Uh, be very careful about attacking someone like that. I, I mean, if you, I, I think if people attack her, they're attack. A lot of Catholics might be very obsessed, particularly Catholics in the Midwest, because uh, my sense of her, I've known her a long time, is that she's uh, quite admirable uh, for her the way she's led her personal life. As you said, she's adopted children. She's a, a good mom of a large family. She's juggling that with being a judge, was juggling that, juggling that with being a professor of law at Notre Dame, a great law school. It, I mean, what are, people would be attacking her, I think, for uh, leading what to, to me seems like a, quite an admirable life. What did she do? You put the question, what is it that she did wrong? It's not like a Brett Kavanaugh, who I don't think did the things people thought he did, but are people going to raise claims about right Amy Coney Barrett being too faithful a Catholic? Right, and that makes her unsuitable for the Supreme Court? But Kavanaugh, in addition to losing his temper, uh, which maybe he regrets doing. Uh, some people thought actually it was a good thing for him to do, but maybe he regrets that. Uh, to some people watching that, John, he would have embodied white privilege, plain and simple. Uh, prep school, Yale, and so mm. forth. She, mm. Amy Coney Barrett, is white, but I don't know if she represents privilege. But um, uh, supposedly Trump said, and again, this is all secondhand words, but supposedly he said uh, when he was looking at Kavanaugh, he was going to save ACB for RBG when she passed. So <laughs> here we are now. We'll see if it happens. I, that's, I mean, that's the inside the beltway gossip as best I know it is that she's been the presumptive runner up to the Kavanaugh seat ever for the last, uh, you know, year and a half, two years. And that it would be a perfect replacement that, but you as you, but your list points out, Bill, is that uh, it doesn't have to be her. It would, I, you, I think I could see your arguments of how it plays politically, but if it's not her conserve legal conservatives, I think would be equally happy with an Ide, with a Larson, with a, you know, the other uh, names you put, with a Thapar, uh, maybe with a Lagosa. I just don't know enough about her. They don't know enough about her, but President Trump has a lot of great options who would also, many, all but one are women. Uh, Judge Thapar be the first Asian American. He's got a lot of great options before him. And that, that's a sign, I think, to his, how important he made judicial appointments throughout his term. And I think that's why he might rally conservatives to him, no matter who he picks from that list. Okay, John, I want to get your thoughts on a couple of things. We'll wrap up the podcast. Um, first thing I notice is we, we talk about these various candidates. It's the issue of age. So Ginsburg was 60 years old when she was appointed by Bill Clinton in 1993. Everyone we've just gone through was age 55 and under. This is sort of the anti-AARP, if you will, of uh, <laughs> appointments. But do you think, John, we're going to ever see an age uh, in a time in the in the future where we're going to pick a justice at least 60 years old? <laughs> no, it's age discrimination. <laughs> I'm aged out. You're aged out. This is terrible. <laughs> Whatever happened to wisdom? <laughs> but, you see, but, you see, but you see the benefit here of youth. And that, you know, she was, yes. RGB was 60 when she was appointed. Yes. Uh, RBG, excuse me. Uh, she served 27 years and 39 days. Clarence Thomas has served longer than she has, John, but Clarence Thomas is 15 years younger than her. Yeah, I mean, she, I clerked from his third year on the court. He's still there. I mean, he, right. he's been, he's going to be there 30 years pretty soon. I, I, this is an interesting difference, I think, between a Ginsburg appointment and maybe the Democratic appoint, uh, approach, maybe, to uh, Republican appointments uh, in a larger sense, is that uh, if you look at Thurgood Marshall, you look at a Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they were being appointed to the court uh, as a recognition of a great career already in the law. As you said, Justice Ginsburg, a professor at Columbia, the person who was the leading, was the Thurgood Marshall of women's rights. And 
but she's already 60. Conservatives want to appoint people in a way who haven't had that long a career before they were judges and expect their greatness, if it is to come, to be on the court, not before the court. Uh, and they want, and maybe it's, it's a sign of how much conservatives now want to, are placing in terms of uh, importance, changing constitutional law through the courts. Whereas, uh, as again, we started out, the Democrats or liberals are mostly playing defense on the court these days. And so for uh, the conservative side, that points in favor of younger, more aggressive intellectuals who are going to be there a long time because they really want to change constitutional law for a generation. And they feel this is the Trump presidency in a way has paid off. Trump promised he would appoint such people and he's come through. And to have this third seat, even at the end of his first term, it could make Trump, I think, the most consequential president in terms of the Supreme Court in 50, 60 years since the Warren era. It's, a, it's unbelievable, actually, as you were saying earlier, about how much crazier could 2020 get? <laughs> That's a very good question, John. Um, next consideration, Harry Reid, um, who so many things about this story are just intertwined in a fascinating way, John. We talk about the McConnell rule in 2016. Well, there was a Biden rule in 1992. Yes. Same, same principle that they, they, you know, there's a presidential election. The president and the Senate belong to different parties. We're not going to have an election year vote. So um, so here's Joe Biden now, maybe in the next president. So that's weirdly intertwined. But Harry Reid, John, who the former Senate majority leader, who just ironically, whereas uh, Justice Ginsburg passed away from pancreatic cancer. Harry Reid is currently battling pancreatic cancer. We hope he's doing well. I wonder, John, on some level, he regrets doing the nuclear option on December 13, which for those who don't understand, yes. Reid changed the rules of the Senate to do away with the filibuster for federal judicial appointees, with the exception of Supreme Court justices at the time. But he started this process by saying that, you know, you can't block our federal picks. I, I think uh, he's got to be uh, rolling over in his bed right now because that's the way the Senate works. As, as you know, Bill, there's, uh, the Senate rules are, there's nothing written in the Constitution about this. It's based on longtime practice and tradition. The courts don't review what the Senate's rules are. And it's interesting, uh, how do a group of 100 people basically constrain themselves? Because under the Constitution, they could set whatever rules they want. They could get rid of the filibuster and then put it back in, get rid of it, put it back in. So what's what happened in the Senate, just my sense of it from working in the body is that tradition and history play so much importance. And so once you decide to break the China, <laughs> once you decide to revolutionize the way something happens, like Harry Reid did with the filibuster, on judges. In fact, some people think that the Democrats actually first created or allowed the filibuster to apply to judges for the first time, and then they were the ones who also first got rid of it. Uh, once you change that practice, the only way for the other side to get you to stop is to to, to retaliate. So con you know, conservatives were very unhappy when Reid did that, and then it was important for, and that's the reason some of the lower courts still have uh, very large majorities of Democratic appointed judges, particularly the court in Washington, D.C., which has been handing Trump a lot of defeats in right. the last three, four years. But the price of that was Harry Reid broke tradition and practice, and he invited retaliation. And I think McConnell, think about McConnell's retaliation was quite minor because why sh this is the way senators reason. Why should that exception for the Supreme Court exist when you've already done away with it for the other 1,000 federal judges uh, right. out there? And so Harry Reid got his just desserts. And he and look, he's not a dumb guy. He foresaw that could have happened, but he chose to go forward anyway. And you know, he reaped the whirlwind of what he started. Right. So, John, that takes us to the question of new and new and even worse mushroom clouds over Capitol Hill in 2021. Yes. Let me throw three at you. Number one, Speaker Pelosi hinted today on the Sunday talk show circuit that she would be open to the idea of impeaching the president should he decide to ram a court pick before the election. I, I don't see what the grounds would be. I mean, you remember, but we did a, a podcast about impeachment. We had a great discussion of what does high crimes and misdemeanors mean. And even though the courts won't hear a case about what high crimes and misdemeanors mean, you know, the Constitu you know, the Senate and the House have an obligation to enforce the Constitution. I don't see how the president performing his constitutional role of nominating somebody 
is a ground for impeachment. That's actually set out in the, in the Constitution. What she wants to do is impeach Senator McConnell because she thinks Senator McConnell, right? That, that's where the real action is, is not President Trump. He's going to pick somebody, maybe by the end of this upcoming week, I would expect. But the real fight is in the Senate, not the president. So I, I think that would be laughable. And it would also, I think, in terms of her own legacy, I think she ought to think about this and probably might, is that, you know, to, to the extent she starts wildly using impeachment like this, it will undermine, I think, the legitimacy of the impeachment we already had. Right? Like, what, what are people going to think about her impeachment of Trump just seven, eight months ago? Isn't that going to look partisan and political now if she were to turn and then try to impeach President Trump for fulfilling his constitutional function of naming justices to the Supreme Court? Okay, let me give you two more mushroom clouds, John, and actually they're they're tied to each other. Number one is the uh, the Democratic threat to expand the high court if they if they're in charge next yeah. year, and concurrent with that, John, the idea of killing the filibuster altogether. Yeah, so that's interesting. So that I think is a more serious uh, possible outcome. Uh, the Constitution does set the size of the Supreme Court up to Congress. And it has changed. Now, it has been nine since almost right after the Civil War. Uh, the changes did come mostly before. And there's something important about nine. It's sort of, you know, it's sort of similar to this debate people are having are the Democrats, if they were to take all three, all, you know, the House and Senate, would they start admitting new states too? There was always a practice uh, recently of admitting states in pairs so they don't change the partisan outcome of the Senate. And there's a similar number nine. Uh, even though there's nothing magical about it or set in stone, what we don't want to have is a system where the Congress changes the number of seats on the court because we don't like the out it doesn't like the outcomes of the Supreme Court and they're just doing it to manipulate uh, how the court decides cases. Now there was a president, <laughs> a great president, who thought that they could do, he could do this in 1936 after he won a tremendous smashing reelection and had control of two thirds of the House of Senate in his own party, right? Franklin Roosevelt, right. and he did want to pack the court exactly the same way and for the exact same reasons. And he even lost in his own a party and is seen as one of the great great political mistakes of his presidency and probably killed off any other chances for. New Deal reform uh, in his other, I guess, three terms in office. So I, I, I mean, I, I, to me, and also one, it also goes back. I think one last point here about the um, way Senate's senators uh, retaliate against each other for changes uh, they introduce a procedure. It would be a huge overreaction, I would think, if the if Senator McConnell is going to say, "Okay, we're going to push through a Supreme Court justice now." Uh, and yes, maybe four years ago, I, you know, he said, I'm not going to push through someone then who, because of vacancy in the last year of a presidency. So maybe Senator McConnell broke a promise or not. I think he could argue it either way. But to say the reaction to that is going to be, we're going to expand the Supreme, Supreme Court by two thirds in size and pack it with six new justices. That's, that's like dropping a nuclear bomb in response you know, to firing a few rifles. That's just a serious overreaction. And then, then I think you are talking about no holds barred in terms of the political treatment of the courts. Okay. So final question, John. Uh, do you think this is going to go down before or after election day? And then let's say it does not happen before election day. Um, will it be done between post-election and inaugural? So I, I, I'm actually curious what you think, Bill, because I, th I think this, there's no legal, you know, perspective on this that gives you, you know, tells you what's going to happen. I would say so the polit from political perspective, uh, maybe in the Senate, uh, from my Senate experience, I would think the best thing would be to, for Trump to nominate someone before the election and hopefully in the next week and take up the same number of days, you know, that you, you described that have uh, governed uh, nominees that come up and be sometimes even 60 days, but then have the vote after the election. Right. But I'm not sure. I don't know whether that's the right thing to do. I think from the Senate perspective and the court perspective, that might be the thing that causes the least political problems for them. 
Yeah, I, I think one way to look at it, John, I'm going to put on my crass political hat now, John. I, I, I look at the following. Number one, okay, I'm going to name somebody to the court. So I'm going to kind of immediately figure the political benefit. So somebody who makes one of my bases, either someone's going to appeal to Midwestern Catholic voters, somebody who's going to appeal to Florida voters, or somebody out there who's going to appeal to conservatives in general. I want to put that person front and center so I can get you know a couple of weeks of nice coverage about that person. Secondly, John, I think you hit on something important. I think at a minimum, you want the Judiciary Committee hearings before the election. Why? Because we expect that to be the circus. And, you know, the circus that I think, and I'm talking between Protestant here, but a circus that I think works to the president's benefit. Why? Because there's a tendency to bring out the worst of the left, John. It's the crazy people who go into Capitol Hill and have to be dragged out. It is uh, A and B and C and D list celebrities, all of whom want to give us our take on how important the Constitution is and a woman's right to choose and things like that. In other words, you get you get Susan Sarandon and Alyssa Milano and just, you know, a bunch of people who don't play in the Midwest involved things the president welcomes as a pot. Populist. Uh, mm-hmm. And thirdly, I think if you put that person in front of the committee, it puts Kamala Harris in an awkward position. How hard does Kamala press against her? How hard do Democrats press against her? I'm assuming the pick will be a woman. And again, since this person will not be Kavanaugh, I think there's just a real high risk of Democrats going too hard on that person and it backfiring. Yeah, and, that, and, I, and I, all I can say in support of what you know, your view is that just based on knowing these people you listed on the shortlist, they're all going to do well. They've all been through the committee hearings. Many of them were already hostile, as you said, for uh, Amy, and they did well. And they're, they're very good people. I think the television camera is not going to lie. Uh, these are, you know, especially they're women, they're, they have families, they've worked hard, they've done what they're, they've, they've done what they supposed to. Now, the interesting thing is that they would maybe not have been able to do what they did if not for Justice Ginsburg's trailblazing role. Maybe that's a, maybe that's a thing. Even though Justice Ginsburg, uh, looking uh, down on everything that's going to happen, she of course might want liberals instead of conservatives. But in a funny way, I think she might be happy that now uh, you know women who came after her, you know, like a Amy Coney Barrett or like a Alison Ida or a Joan Larson, are going to be people who uh, their careers were possible because of Justice Ginsburg. And, and I hope she's you know, looking down, feeling some satisfaction at that. Final question, John. Uh, If the Democrats were to flip the Senate uh, on election day, uh, is there any way for them to drag out the process? Assuming they flip the Senate and Biden Mm. also wins, is there any way for them to delay and drag this thing out, play stall ball, if you will, until inauguration day and then, you know, replace the pick with somebody else? Uh, Or if Trump were reelected, John, and they controlled the Senate, could they just refuse to hear the pick? Could you go four years, John, with a 4-4 court? Yeah, so this is interesting. In, if in the first scenario, uh, suppose the Republicans lose the Senate, Trump stays in office, uh, there's nothing still that prevents Senator McConnell as the majority leader. As you know, the Senate rules really concentrate the power of scheduling his hands. He could even just, sort of, in a way, discharge the nomination out of the committee and just have it voted on the floor. Uh, he could still get the thing through uh, during the lame duck. The main restraint is what Democrats would do in retaliation in the next four years. And so you're quite right. The other thing that the Democrats in the Senate could do, it would be a complete break, of course, with all constitutional practice in the Senate, would be just to say, we're not going to fill the seat. We'll never have a confirmation hearing uh, for two years and, and leave it up to the 2022 elections to decide whether you're going to change uh, the Senate and kick us out because we're taking such an extreme stand. Now, what could happen? And this is, you know, I know you like these kinds of, uh, you know, if you follow all the rules down the rabbit hole, what happens? So if that were to happen, then what the president would do would be to use his recess appointment power and put, because you would, you can't have the Supreme Court being 4-4, you know, and anyway, President would want to have his nominees there, even if for just a two-year period. So extrapolate, what would happen if everybody did that to each other? Then I think you really uh, destroy the independence of the courts, because that means Republicans will never confirm Democrats either. And it just means that the justices on the Supreme Court are just going to be there serving during the terms of the presidents who appointed them. They'll become just like agencies. <laughs> They'll just become like the Federal Trade Commission. And we certainly uh, wouldn't want that. Well, John, I've enjoyed this conversation. I kind of feel bad about taking up an hour of your Sunday, but you know what? You can be doing this 24-7. <laughs> I'd much, much rather spend an hour with you than five minutes on CNN. <laughs> that almost sounds sincere, John. <laughs> But look, I did enjoy the conversation and we'll have to pick it up again once uh, we do have a nominee in place. 
Yes, I would love to. I'd love to come back. Okay, John, great. again, take care and great, great conversation. Yeah, you too. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States, in this case, what to do about a Supreme Court vacancy. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work from Hoover's fellows. That includes John Yu, straight to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. John Yu, smart man that he is, is not on Twitter. There are a lot of people named John Yu on Twitter, but John Yu is not one of them. <laughs> and I'm never going to be on Twitter. <laughs> but you can hear John Yu on Hoover's Pacific Century podcast that I mentioned. And by all means, go to Amazon and pick up a copy of his book, the title of which is Defender in Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. As always, thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.